If you're a founder building a company, you're going to eventually have to start hiring executives to help you scale. The people you bring into your leadership team can make or break your startup. I'm Nigel Robinson with Build Talent, and in each episode, we'll be speaking with a founder or expert as we discuss the art and science of hiring leaders, why it matters, and how you can keep up. Welcome to the Gradients Podcast. Okay, I am here with our good friend, Kevin Novak. Kevin is currently the managing partner and founder at Rackhouse Ventures. That's an early stage VC fund that backs data founders, regardless of sector or geography. Before that, he was an angel investor at Jigsaw Venture, which was an early stage venture fund focused on founders and firms that sit at the intersection of AI and ML and the real world. Before that, he was at Renegade Partners, which is a VC firm that helps founders navigate that pivotal phase of their development where they need that CTO. And before this was uh, head of data science at, at Early Uber, part of that early data science team. But he is here to share with us some of his insight from that winding journey. I'm sure you've met with a ton of founders and had to deal with a lot of the problems that we bump our head on over here. So thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. We hope so. All right. So let's start with just the story. Like, let me know a little bit about your journey. Yeah. Happy to share. I mean, I'll, I'll give it to you in high-level chronological order, and we can double-click into anything you find particularly interesting. So, I mean, my story, despite the fact that I cut checks for a living in the data companies, I started out very much on the operating side of the equation. So coming up through school, I was actually aspiring to be a physicist. I've got a degrees in academic training in nuclear physics was very tangentially working on the Higgs boson project, which was exciting. And it was a big deal for humanity when we discovered it and was absolutely horrible for my research funding. (laughs) And so I had to figure out what was next and was kind of tooling around, gliding my way out of grad school. And I got a call up from an old buddy who said like, hey, there's this limo company with an app. Like you got to come check this out on the West Coast. And so I uh, hopped a plane, literally got off the plane at SFO and jumped right into my interview at UberCab. By the time, you know, managed to pass it. And by the time I started, they were Uber and ended up joining as their 21st employee. Spent seven, almost eight years working at Uber, kind of joined as a bottoms up. I think I titled myself like a computational algorithms engineer or something, but I was a data scientist, functionally kind of before the title became a thing. Spent two, three years working as a rank and file data scientist, built or collaborated on a bunch of the earliest features in the Uber app. The cars following the roads was something I advised on. I did a lot of work around supply and demand forecasting. And the thing everybody knows me for is I invented dynamic pricing. So for all of your listeners, if you've ever been surged in an Uber, you're welcome. That's my invention (laughs) to the world. But spent two years building that and kind of building it from a team of one and then kind of glommed on a couple of folks and realized I loved it. I really like coaching. I like advising. And so I stepped into management and was sort of tapped as being Uber's first head of data and then spent the next few years basically hiring data scientists full time was what it felt like. I, I think I ran the math and I was either directly or indirectly hiring Uber's first 200 some odd data folks, like very distributed, very embedded type team. And so went from 
understanding the theory of management, but never done it to running an org of sort of grew to like 50, 70 pretty quickly. Got, we all agreed it was right to hire an adult executive to kind of take it over and then move over to another org and built that up, you know, kind of became the guy who went from one to 50 a couple times in my Uber career and did that for data, did that for our data platform teams, had a couple different postings and then helped get involved early on with Uber Freight, basically Uber's long haul trucking, sort of my last big thing. Did that, as I said, I did Uber almost eight years. And after which I was kind of looking for my next startup, joined Tala Financial as their chief data officer right around 2018. And did that kind of help them do a little bit of a rebuild around data, a very different problem. It was kind of uh, Tala does like microfinance and lending. So they work in East Africa, Southeast Asia, a little bit of Latin America kind of helping people without traditional financial identities, people who don't have you know bank accounts and FICO scores, basically get liquidity. They do loans, they help kind of coach and teach people up on financial stability. So an interesting data problem. Yeah, so between a dynamic pricing and the Higgs boson, they're right there with each other. <laughs> but so you go into Uber and this is like the... It really accelerates your operating level, it sounds like. Like you jump in and you're you're kind of doing data science, but then you start to lead data science and become head of data. Yeah. And like you're saying, you go to like that zero to 50 a few times. I guess what I'm interested in is how you make the jump from being this data leader into then like what spurts the VC interest. Yeah, that's right. That comes because it seems like that becomes a real guiding theme after leaving Uber and, and then this other venture. That's a good question. And one I had to spend a bunch of time figuring out that kind of after Tala, I wanted to come back to the Bay Area. I had to kind of rebuild what motivated me through this next career. And Uber had gone public. I was in sort of a place of financial stability. And, you know, and I had like a very extremely sort of positive startup experience. So I checked a lot of boxes of what I was looking to get out of it. And for me, venture capital way, like the money is a means to an end in that one of the through lines to my career, I was in academia because I wanted to teach at one point. I sort of was the person who jumped at management because I liked to coach and mentor. And so for me, venture was this ability to have that same like coach advisor mentor role with founders, right? Sort of having spent a bunch of time seeing now several times what one to 50 people looks like organizationally, one to 50 people looks like from sort of level of technology sophistication. I felt that that was both relevant and useful experience. I find it very rewarding. And venture gives this sort of natural alignment of financial incentives. And so venture, I thought, was really intriguing. Rackhouse came out of it largely because I didn't, (laughs) to be candid, I didn't love most VCs. Like, I like them individually and I respect the role the industry has, but I didn't feel like enough funds were kind of seeing AI investing the way I saw it, which was that most of my deal flow, most of my exposure to investing had come from practitioners, right? It was like we're hanging out over drinks or something or a former employee like comes to my desk and is like, Kevin, I have like capital T, capital I, the idea, I have to go start a company. What do you think? Kind of thing. And so it was very much this like, I love the problem in the domain and then investing kind of was the thing I grew into. And as such, I didn't have this perspective of like, 
investment grade AI as like only enterprise or only fintech. I'm just like, I like cool data problems. Some fraction of them are good businesses. So Rackhouse came out of this idea that was sort of catalyzing this worldview I had that AI has a pretty industry agnostic perspective. There's a lot of opportunities all over the place for data. Let's build a fund where we don't have this like specific investing thesis around one of them. So Rackhouse is industry agnostic. Basically, if data is core to what you do and you're early, regardless of where you live or what you look like or what your industry is, we're interested. I love that. And it's been fun. We're like 18 months in, but uh, having a blast with it. I love that. And you have taken multiple at-bats in the VC thing. So I guess I'm interested too, like what you've done differently at Rackhouse learning from those other ventures that, that you started? Because it seems like you've been focused on the early stage. And I agree with you that zero to 50, like that's critical. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, I mean, so for me, it was like breaking into venture was very much an exercise in knowing what I'm good at and knowing what I need to get better at. Right. And the thing that everyone had told me is like, you're clearly good at data. You've got a strong story. Your professional track record kind of speaks for itself. Your gap is like, one, you don't have connections to LPs. You just don't have that. I mean, you've got like your Uber buddies who've kind of made their windfall, but you don't have like connections to like traditional investment, right? And you don't have the background that screams like, I am a career financier. I don't have the business school degree. That's not where my strengths are. And so I had this idea. In some ways, I tell it to you as a thesis, like I generated it, but it, it largely grew out of what I've been learning as an angel investor. I've been like kind of recycling Uber money since 2014, 2015, something like that. And knew I wanted to work on this. And so when I met up with the folks at Renegade, who I, who I respect the hell out of, and also kind of have this kind of contrarian taste that there is this gap in the market, it seemed like a really good opportunity to kind of ally and they had this sort of series a and b thing and i had this early stage thing and we both kind of thought venture could be improved in these ways the reason why i'm not a renegade is just COVID. right is the reality that we went the fundraising story is theirs to be told but we went from a place of kind of having this alliance of a couple funds pandemic happened there was sort of a big reset and they really wanted to kind of scope down and focus which i thought was smart i mean i look i've worked at enough startups to know that Sometimes the best thing to do is focus, do less and do it better. And that just, it came to me of being, do I want to be part of that mission? Or do I really believe in in this sort of thesis? And I decided to bet on myself. I love it. as As a founder, as an angel, like I can't go for a living and tell them to bet on themselves without doing it once or twice myself. So yeah, yeah. For me, it's, it's always been, I knew what I wanted. It was just kind of trying to figure out the mast had to do it under. And ultimately I said, you know what? I think there's enough here that I can put together enough of a pitch that I decided to just strike out on my own. Awesome. I love it. And so you raise your fund, you strike out your rack house. Yeah. What is the criteria that you followed when selecting your team for rack house? Because it's different than yeah, for sure. building a product or working on a technology segment of a larger business. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I mean, we're a small fund and, and the team is correspondingly quite small, but it, there are some very conceptual parallels to finding a great investor as there is to finding a great data scientist, which is sort of most common recruiting tasks sort of prior to all of this, in that when you're hiring a data person, right, or a data scientist, data analyst, there's sort of this combination of two skill sets or sort of two axes, I think, of when you think about recruiting, which is 
to be really good at data, you need to have domain expertise in like three or four really important domains, right? You need to have like a really good understanding of statistics and probability and underlying mathematics. You need to have a better than passing familiarity with programming and programming concepts. You need to have sort of machine learning or operations research or like whatever advanced math domain there is. And then you need to have like the soft skills of can you talk to people who are not domain experts? Can you present written, oral, you know, all of the, can you take everything that's like obvious in your brain and like make a team better with it? All of that communication. And so when I was assessing and hiring data scientists, you would kind of go through the earlier kind of middle phases of the invest or the recruiting process was assessing each of those skills individually, right? And then the later stages was kind of shifting to the other axis, which is, can you like string all of those skills together in a way which actually like delivers results? And can you like, yes, you can program and yes, you can communicate well, but then could you pair program well with a non-data scientist, right? Uh-huh. And it became a little bit less of checking your anyone sort of skill set and more of, do you have the kind of wisdom and experience to string it all together? I think venture is very similar in that it's like, can you work with founders? Can you assess and diligence a company? Do you have the financial skills to make sure that the terms of the deal you're getting involved in are true to a model, financially prudent? And then you have the ability to kind of work with them and support them as a portfolio company. Each of those is like its own skill to master over time. But to be a really great investor, you need to be able to kind of string it all together on the fly and do each of them. So I think a lot of these sort of roles, especially when you've got this sort of hybrid role, is about synthesizing a lot of individual skill domains. And so I felt like both as a data manager and data person, getting really good at building a process that could kind of assess both vertically and then like sort of horizontally gave me a lot of confidence that you could do something similar for venture. And then, so I'd say like, like that's sort of how we get to a good place on as far as skill set wise goes. The other component, which is both true for Uber and is true for venture, is there's a lot of triage and a lot of inbound. And anybody who recruits for a long time can tell you that cold inbound is not a particularly high performing channel, right? In that, yeah, love the enthusiasm, love the support, but finding really great skill set is not just about being enthusiastic, right? You kind of... Yeah. Well, so... It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. It I wish that inbound had higher quality candidates than it tends to. Totally. What I love about it, and this is actually reflecting back to like when I was in academia, I was a TA for physics for pre-med students. And you want to talk about like the definition of somebody who didn't want to be there. It was a pre-med <laughs> student taking like the 8 a.m. physics lab course. They're like, yeah. oh my God, I just have to take this to get into med school and I need a good grade on it. So I will do it, but I will do it under protest. Like what I love about data broadly and even VC is the baseline enthusiasm is so much higher. Mm. Like nobody is a data scientist because their father was a data scientist and their yeah. father was a data scientist. Like it's, yeah, everybody was doing something else and consciously opted like at some point into doing the domain. Right. So the default posture is so much more leaned in. Yeah. Right. Like the VC is very similar, right? You didn't like major in VC just in there. Nobody's like, I guess I'm stuck here. Right. I guess this is what yeah, exactly. I, this is my lot in life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I remember that because I know what apathy feels like. And yeah, it's nice to not have that. 
Well, one of the things that's interesting here is being a data person and being a seed venture specialist, it's like you don't have a ton of data to go off of in some sense at the seed round. It's like, and I know that there's intuitive elements in the data world also, but how do you reconcile that where it is so much more qualitative than quantitative when working with these founders maybe or working with maybe different businesses in different areas that you may not know super well? Sure. Well, I mean, on the diligence side of things, it's definitely an interesting, like, it's interesting in that, like, so much of, I think, what drove value for me as an operator is, as you say, like, very not applicable. But I think on the support side of things, having enough experience with sort of scalable, like, seeing data patterns that scale and data patterns that don't, it makes me really valuable, right? That I'll come back to the diligence side of things. But I very much see my job as an investor early on is when I'm working with teams and I've made good investment decisions, like the things which are smart and obvious, they can figure out. And the things which are like obviously stupid, they can also figure out like that's need much coaching. But as a coach, it's the three ideas that you're thinking about, which are ultimately bad ideas, but are not obvious as to why. Like here are things you want to do, but you shouldn't. And here are like three things you're not thinking about, which could destroy your company that you need to prioritize. Like if I can find those quadrants, I think we're doing really well. And a lot of those problems come up in data, right? It's kind of like data security. Interesting. Data privacy are things where you're like, okay, I've got a hundred rows in my SQL database. Like, do I really need to care about this? And you're like, Yes, you do. And here's why. <laughs> or, right. hey, have you actually thought that like this pattern you're following is not going to scale up? And worse, there's no obvious way to kind of unscrew yourself. So <laughs> you know, do this, do that kind of thing. Like do this now when it's easy to fix. Migrate to this technology or adopt this architectural pattern. Yeah. And you will thank me in three years. Yeah. It's a lot of the what to do when and when to do what. Yeah, exactly. That maybe wouldn't be as obvious in the beginning. So are there like, I get that there's this theme of like a lot of it has to do with data, but are there like the top three most frequently seen potholes that people could avoid or something? Yeah, for sure. It's perfect that it's kind of tied into this podcast because I think recruiting is like when to hire my first data person and what is the right sort of subset is like definitely in the top three. Right. And I think working with founders, the most common breakdown I see is either I want to hire an analyst and I classify an analyst as somebody who doesn't have enough programming skills that your engineers would like want to work with them without actually having much data. That's a very common anti pattern. Or the other is not being sort of pragmatic about what a data engineer, analytics engineer needs to be successful or sort of skill set. So I think what's very common and what I usually coach people to do is if you have a team that and as a and leader that you expect is going to need to scale, you want to build organizational structures and you want to hire people whose skill sets enable them not to be blocked, right? But if you are a and what I mean by the most common thing that happens is if you have a technology stack that is really hard to work with and you can't easily like deploy to production or you don't have a flow that gets features deployed into production and you hire a data person, you say, please build me some features, right? Like in, when I was early on at Uber, I was embedded with the engineering team and 
they were like, okay, here are features which are deployed to the app, and this is what I want it to look like. This is proper software engineering. The feature just happened to be, can you build me like an ARIMA time series forecast of demand or something, right? And so what was required of me is I had to submit pull requests to like our head of engineering that the head of engineering wasn't going to bark fall over, right? And that's a very high technical bar, right? Right. So, and I luckily was successful because I kind of, learned enough Python quickly enough that I could keep up with that. But companies will either hire non-technical data folks with a very high technical bar to actually add value, or maybe more perniciously is that they will hire technical folks, allow them to add value sort of in theory, but not actually get enough engineering buy-in where people are actually submitting decent pull requests. They're just, the engineer's like, your data person, like there isn't enough like sort of social air cover. That's a very common pattern. So finding the right mix of sort of stakeholders and technology skill is a very much a balancing act. So the other and why I make communication skills like a very first order thing that you assess is hiring like brilliant people who can't communicate, can't talk to them. One of my favorite recruiting exercises, I encourage everyone to do this with any domain expert, but especially data people is you ask them to do a five-minute presentation on a topic of their choice. Like just sort of like, hey, doesn't have to be more than 10 slides. You can talk about literally anything. I've seen these presentations done on whitewater rafting techniques, but like it needs to be educational. Yeah, And you need to be aware that it's going to be a mixed audience of data people and non-data people. And you just, you have five team members listed to them. And it's a very Boolean interview exercise. Like, did you feel like that they were able to, you teach you something at a level you would sort of met you where you were at yeah, or not. And you'd be amazed at the number of PhDs, brilliant scientists who just can't talk to a PM. Yeah. I can't do that. You need helper people and you're not, and your organization won't scale smoothly. And that's really interesting where they're so deep in it that they can't communicate well with people outside of it. Yeah. And there's roles for that, but it's not an early stage company. Right. We all kind of need to be able to pretty quickly get on the same page. Wow. So where do you tend to find that first data person hired? Is that in your first dozen people? Is that in your first 20 people? Yeah. Yeah. How do you think about that? The first one's always tough. I tend to look for people who are, I always joke that I I like people who are sort of like chronically impatient with their current situation, you know, because again, you have that like inherent buy-in. So Especially early on, like it, at Uber, the initial roles were always skewed very technical just because we're going, I think, where the tooling ecosystem was. Right. And so finding individuals who were like career backend engineers, right? Or career data engineers who really wanted to break in the machine learning or really, and they did the Coursera, you know, where they had like, or they were working on projects as the engineer on like a split team and really. We're interested in breaking into data. It's a great opportunity to have a win-win for both people that you can hire them as the like anchor data scientists, knowing that they have a very sort of broad skill set because they're in a career transition. And you give them the opportunity to kind of bank their first data scientist title on their LinkedIn or on their resume. So they're motivated to do it. The other thing, the other place I used to find folks was I would, this is actually true, I would go to like very academic data science or operations research conferences and like look for the people at the poster sessions who like looked like they didn't want to be there. They were like, in fact, some of my best hires, one was this quantum chemist who had like an offer from Rutgers for her whole, it was like, we will fund your lab. 
And she was just like so impatient with the speed of academia that she was like wishing somebody would come along and give her this, give her an opportunity to break in the industry. And it ended up, you know, she ended up going on to do great things at Uber and has, has continued to build this awesome career. But these finding people who have this sort of inherent dissatisfaction, they're inherently experimental, they're inherently willing to try something which they've got a high pain tolerance. And then like those personality characteristics make them great anchor employees. And it just is a question of how technical are you? How statistical are you? But you know, looking for the, the maladjusted folks, weirdly enough, great anchor employees. I love that. Pulling the maladjusted academics like those are actually the right people. Wow. Totally. Like if you're thriving in academia, you're probably not a startup person. But if you're like vaguely pissed off, then I want to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, no, I can totally see that. I love that idea of like just the inherently experimental, inherently impatient, and also a high pain tolerance. It's <laughs> like the killer combo. <laughs> totally. Okay. And so... I guess the other thing that I'm interested in here is you started Rackhouse with this thesis that you had developed over the course of putting in the hours on venture, putting in the hours as a technology leader. How do you instill that vision? How do you disseminate that within your organization? And how do you think about that culturally? Because obviously you have your own ears and eyes and you have to trust other people's judgment with their own ears and eyes sure. and hearts and guts. Yeah. How do you think about that? Yeah, it's tough because so much of my style pre-COVID was like FaceTime driven, right? Like, and I think that goes back even to like how I was recruited at Uber, which was like, I showed up on a Friday, I did an all day interview. And then they were like, oh, we're doing like our one year birthday party. Like we're doing a barbecue on Saturday and come by. And I was in town for the weekend. And then Let's just like hang out on Monday. So I mean, they had an interview process, but they were also just like, let's spend some time together. And it's let's be real people. Hey, exactly. And yeah, it doesn't have to be hyper polished all the time, right? I think that's so important, both both for when you're building your own company, as stuff I advise founders to. And I think COVID and the move to Zoom has had undeniable positives in that it's opened the aperture for who you can hire, but it makes it harder to do that. So I look for every opportunity, especially now where vaccines are more of a thing, people are kind of more comfortable to get FaceTime with folks because I can write mission statements. I can sit on Zoom and give you 10 or 15 minute monologues. And those are important. Like, I think it's important that people understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, but both from the here's the reason this business exists, but also here's why I'm spending a significant fraction of the number of hours in my life on this mission and why I think you should too. Right. I think matter. But it's also like a lot of the, I think the reasons why people stick around for things are much more subtle and much more like it's kindness you show to other people. It's you see sort of mannerisms. I think people inherently want to work for good people, you know, and capital G good kind of thing. And I think that matters. I think it's a big part of why I've stayed friends with the vast majority of my employees and coworkers and was hanging out with the Uber guys this past weekend. Yeah. What, 10, 15, 10 years after we all got together. Like, I think that matters. And it's really hard if I knew of an effective way to do that, that wasn't just a function of hours spent together. I would love to know it because it's spending hours together is not particularly scalable, but that's the best way I know. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, we try to do a little team on sites here. We have people yeah. that fly to and from the various 
HQs of, of our people. And yeah, there's no real substitute for uh, yeah. being live in person. Very much. Yeah. And the offsite's onsite kind of framework, I think is a good hybrid. I think we're in a very much a kind of industry-wide experiment of what does the hybrid version of this look like that is sort of scalable or pragmatic to the fact that we don't all right. eight feet away from each other. It'll be interesting to see how this shakes out over the next year or two. I think so too. And I mean, I guess from what you're seeing, you got the bird's eye view of having your portfolio and having a bunch of friends and colleagues that are that are kind of in this experiment. What have you seen as like the challenges, especially maybe at the seed stage level where you are in that zero to 50 range as far as your personnel? The stuff that seems to be working well, the venture capital industry, despite their like strong protestation, I don't know how many people were paying attention to this early in the pandemic. VC as a face-to-face business has like largely moved digital with little interruption. And I've personally had the ability to invest in companies in Kenya and Sweden and all over the planet entirely on Zoom. So I think that that works well and the ability for companies to raise successfully is working well. I haven't seen the data, but I, I also just think from a marketplace perspective, increasing the ability for capital and founders to find each other will hopefully be good for all founders, especially those who are would have traditionally struggled to go do the Santel Road Shuffle two, three years ago. I think recruiting has also gone particularly well, at least the beginning stages of, hey, can I, I found my kind of landing party, my anchor employees, and I need my third, fourth, and fifth software engineers. You know, lots of companies are taking advantage of traditionally harder to break into labor markets. You know, I remember like it, when it was a massive deal for Uber to you know, move into Lithuania and we had to like buy a team and it was like very heavy lift. And now people are just like, oh, I found them on Zoom, found them on AngelList. Yeah. I've got folks all over. What I don't think people have found a great answer for is, is what happens when you've kind of earned that hyperscaling phase of the company and you've got to go from five to 50. And there are, as I say that, I also think of plenty of teams who have decided to hyperscale when they didn't need to. But let's acknowledge that that's kind of besides the point that there are a certain number of companies where you found product market fit. The wait list is long and getting longer by the day on the customer side. And you really need to figure out scalable ways to onboard talent. And you need to figure out scalable ways to propagate your culture. You need to figure out scalable ways to manage poor hiring decisions. All of these things, I think, are much more challenging when you can't like pull 10 people into a room. Or I remember when it was like one engineer supervising like four interns who were just like in a pod that was just like sitting next to them. And you kind of have this like one-to-many scaling pattern. I don't think anybody has really figured out what that looks like in the digital world. I think people are trying it. Right. What's challenging about this is is the it's going to take you a year or two before you've really got deep, like data-driven, evidence-driven, evidence around did you do a good or bad decision around this. Right. I just think it's too new. That's the thing that I'd say founders are all stressing out about, especially the ones that are thriving. That's really interesting. And they're probably, the interns are probably really getting lost in the shuffle here. I, I, I used to work with interns when I first started, and I remember how meaningful those cohorts were when they were on the ground floor with everybody. Yeah, and today's interns are tomorrow's entry-level employees or four years from now. They're right. your next tech lead. So 
I think everybody's kind of been in, in emergency mode for justifiable reasons and kind of focused on much more immediate problems. But that's the thing that I think a lot about over the next three, four years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Just the integration of like intergenerational talent within your company. Wow. Okay. And then as you've been on this journey as a investor, as an operator, what are some of the mistakes maybe that you've bumped your head on? Things that you learned the harder way? I think to be totally honest, and this is taking a little bit of time to figure out, but I think one of my biggest mistakes as an operator was early on, I didn't ask for help early enough and I wasn't kind of willing to let go quickly enough in that. So I was running this first, my first day to team. And I think by and large, we were really successful, but there were maybe three or four pretty serious management challenges I was wrestling with. You know, a couple employees who, who I couldn't quite figure out how to get into shape up and a couple other internal politics issues, this kind of stuff that is you know, fixable with good management skills, but toxic if left unaddressed is kind of how you think about it. And I, as a manager, in retrospect, quite arrogantly, was convinced that my job was just to basically like steer around the problems, right? If I could get like the other 95% of the people on task, successful, motivated, then I was doing a good job. And it was more of a damage mitigation problem. And I was not paying attention to the sort of toxic effect this could happen in the culture. Mm -hmm. I was like talking with the with Tuan at the time and Jeff, the Uber CTO, CPO, and hey, here, here's what I'm wrestling with. And they're kind of like, you need to pay attention to this. And I was very much like, I got it, right? Yeah. And I was on vacation. I got a call and they said, look, we've been talking about the challenges with data. We decided we're going to bring in another executive and kind of help you out in all of this. And they'll kind of take over your team and give you a chance to learn. And I was of the attitude. I mean, obviously, a lot of arrogance. Ego took a hit. I was pretty cranky about all of it. But showed up and was very much the... Everybody will read Rebay Dave listen to this story, but I was just kind of like, here, the team is yours. Good luck, kind of. Yeah. Oh, you think you could do better? <laughs> exactly. Like, good luck, kind of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. We fully expected, like, look, everybody's going to realize that this is about as good as we can function in life. Right. Good luck. And this guy, in three weeks, solved every single one of my, like, air quotes, like, wow. unsolvable problems. Like, he ran circles around me. Wow. I have never been more humbled in my professional career than those three weeks after I turned over my first team. And once I got over the, like, sense of, like, oh, damn, you know, oh, shit, kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. I realized I probably learned more about management in the next 90 days than I like had at any other point. What like from a derivative perspective, yeah. Like I learned more in those next 90 days than any other point in my career before or since. Right. Wow. Once you emptied your cup, right? Right, exactly. And once you have a little distance from it. And also, I mean, there's nothing more educational than seeing someone do it live in front of you, you know, six feet away. Yeah. I always remember that because I think, especially with all these companies, like and even true, I mean, this is true of the startups I work with now, like the fact that you can be excellent at your job at every phase of the company at every size of organization, the odds of that happening are basically zero. Yeah. Right. You were going to suck at some point. Yeah. Potentially multiple points. And being able to like step back, set it down, maybe bring in another leader, which was appropriate choice in this case, I think is underappreciated. Yeah. And having had it 
happen to me first person. I can speak with a lot more authenticity of like, hey, this is going to like be unpleasant in the moment and will be phenomenal for your growth in the long run. Yeah, that's what happened to me. I love that. And so I guess in thinking about that for the founders that are the, the aspiring founders, the first time founders that are listening to this, what is some advice that you would give to them as they're starting their founder journey? Maybe they've never been to the 50 mark. Maybe this is yeah, for sure. their first at bat for this kind of operating level problem that we're talking about. Yeah, I think speaking as both an investor and an operator and somebody who's worked for managers of all levels of quality, I think if you're founding a company, the best thing you can do is spend a lot of time thinking about what you're great at, what you know you're not good at, and what you are not good at, but think you can get better at with a little bit of exposure. Like think about what those buckets are. And if find the things that you're great at are the should be in the talk track of your pitch. Right? Like I'm the world's best expert on dynamic pricing. Find a company that relates to dynamic pricing. Make sure every investor knows that, right? Like that's first person, obviously, but the things you're great at are your pitch. The things you're not good at are the things you need to find in a co-founder. Right. Like for me personally, I hate writing, to be totally honest. Like there's a reason I went the math for a living. Right. <laughs> like, like as a career, like asking you to like write a deal memo or do all of this like content and marketing and stuff like rack has in a big part. Part of it's just, I know I'm not good at it. Right. So I've always like, when I find co-founders, when I find help, it's like, help me with that skill set. Help me with marketing, help me with business operations. Right. And the stuff that you're not good at, but you want to get better at is where you find coaches and mentors, mm -hmm. advisory boards, investors, even, you know, I find I have lots of founders who come to me saying, I know I've got a data company and I can get us like 25% down the road, but I don't know how to get us the next, the rest of the way. Rackhouse might be a really great potential partner for us. That is, I think, the way you kind of handle those growth areas. But the quickest way to scare the hell out of your employees and your investors is if you demonstrate an unawareness of the sort of your personal reality or the reality of the situation on the ground, like pretending everything is fine when it's not. Right. Pretending like you are the world's biggest expert in AI when you obviously aren't. Right. Those are really big red flags for everybody. And people figure it out a lot quicker, I think, than people tend to realize. Yeah, self-awareness is hypercritical. I don't think you can really build a strong culture of trust without it. Honestly, yeah. you, can't, you can't build anything without trust. So, But it's kind of one of those things that if you've got that and you've got the team, I think the opportunity is pretty big in AI. You know, so a lot of founders ask me, like, what problems should I focus on or not? I always have a couple shortlisted. Feel free to ping me. But <laughs> broadly speaking, like Rackhouse makes a point of being open-minded because you know, we think there's a lot of opportunity out there. So I wouldn't sweat too much on trying to like, you know, do I need to start a Web3 company because Web3 is hot right now or something? Like right. find the problem and then figure out your investor. But self-awareness, good founding team, orders of magnitude more important. Yeah, I would agree. And I guess giving advice to your younger self about the hiring side of the founder journey or just the people side of upscaling yourself as an operator, what would you share with young Kevin who's maybe uh, getting his first leadership role over at Uber or something, you know? <laughs> oh boy, that's a good question. I think that I didn't appreciate at the time how much employees respond to people who like genuinely want them to be successful. Like I, I think I kind of undersold that a little bit. And I was just sort of like, oh, of course, 
I didn't really make that like part of my management thing because it was kind of like, a, oh, this is obvious. Right. But I've always told every employee who's worked for me, and even most employees who I'm trying to close, some version of like, look, you owe it to yourself to only work for people who like want to get you where you're going. If you tell me, if you come to my office and you say, Kevin, like, this is what I want to do with my career, and it is like capital I important. My only response is like, okay, well, like, let's help support you in that. Now, sometimes you and I may disagree on the journey. If you walk in and say, Kevin, I want to be chief data officer one day. And I might be like, well, like, look, we got to really, we're pretty far off the mark. I will help you, but you might be 10 years out and you might think you're 10 months out kind of thing. Like, I can't guarantee you and I will agree on everything, but I will help. Yeah. And I think that baseline, and I tell them like, look, if I ever tell you no, like you should quit. Because like, from the, just but truthfully, from the perspective of like, life is short, why waste hours working for somebody who doesn't believe in where you want to go, right? Yeah, yeah. Or isn't willing to help you try and get there. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, look, this is not just true of me. This is true of any manager you ever worked for, right? So that perspective of just baseline, like, look, if it's important, I'll help you. And then if it's what you want to do, regardless of what it is, oh, well, I think that that I underappreciated how important that was to employees. I underappreciated how uncommon that might be amongst hiring managers. And it's a lesson I try to teach to every manager who works, everybody who hires, like you got to be both a effective business operator and great data scientist, but also you're a custodian of people's careers and of people's time on on this planet. So you got to be good caretakers of that as well. No, that's huge. Yeah, because it's not just 40 hours plus a week on these problems, but it's with these people. Yeah, and it's not just of like their work life. It's of their life. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, and there's only so many years that most people's lives give them to do early stage startups and eat ramen and sleep on futons and stuff. Yeah. Lord knows I'm hitting the point where I need... You know, 10 hours of sleep and whatnot. <laughs> so uh, you got to be aware of that too. Yeah. Well, we're coming to kind of the closing round. This has been a lot of good stuff in here. I guess now that you've been looking out at the landscape, you got a few companies under your belt. What are some of the companies and or founders that you'd like to shout out as people that you particularly admire or think are doing excellent work? I think if people are looking for their next thing or looking for founders to emulate, we've got a couple of companies in the Rackhouse portfolio. Most of them, I wouldn't work with them if they weren't founders I respected. But sure. our best performers, I think our best executors, Nash is definitely one of them. If anybody's looking, it's usenash.com. They do delivery facilitation. I'm an old Uber guy, so you can imagine I do a lot of logistics work. But they have built this product that's really focused around helping small businesses kind of of all shapes and sizes get delivery. And specifically... Everything you know, restaurants work particularly well, kind of with the current offerings. But you know, they work with pharmacies and florists and dry cleaners and wow, and all those sort of mom and pop shops who want to do same day delivery, who kind of want that Uber Eats like feel. They're growing like a weed, but doing it in the right way. I think taking care of each other and taking care of customers, most importantly. I think another one that I think is really fascinating and is a good example of where data opportunity exists kind of off the typical Silicon Valley path is the Scoot Sign. It's a company that does oceanic data. So the idea behind it is that they've developed an operations product 
from that, that works fish farmers kind of all over the planet. They've got a lot of customers up in British Columbia. And it's called Scoot because it came out of an academic group called the Santa Cruz Ocean Observability Team. So they have this long running tradition of they have an air quote board meeting, which is everybody gets surfboards out and can go through <laughs> the waves kind of thing. But they work with fish farmers and it's a really important mission because people who do business in, on, or around the ocean don't have a very good understanding of the future of how the ocean will behave next week, next month, next year. And with climate change, it's becoming a really challenging problem that fish farms all over the world are, are losing fish. They have algae blooms or current shift. They, some of the data, I'm not sure. I can't give the exact numbers, but more to come on this. They'll have it on their website soon. But they've been able to find like 20, 30% improvement in fish fields from these farms. Wow. Mostly just by using data better. You know, so as a data nerd, I like, I love that kind of impact. But I also think it's important because it factors in climate change and the kind of problems that I wish more founders worried about. Yeah, no, I like that where, you know, all these fish farmers have been thrown into a little bit more chaos, not being able to predict these movements. And it's like, it's not utter chaos. It's just, they just don't have the data to really make sense of the patterns, perhaps. Right. You can't get insurance for fish farms often anymore because you just lose so many fish. I mean, wow, it's wild that that we went to a conference like a quarter or two ago and they said, you're not really a true fish farmer until you've killed a million fish. Right. Wow. I was like, imagine if you were like a dairy farmer and they're like, you're not really a dairy farmer until you lost a thousand cows or something. Right. Like that is like, ridiculous, but they're just, there's such an opportunity. They're so not data-driven. Even the most basic kind of predictive analytics is massive opportunity. Yeah. Like you're saying, just moving the needle 10%, 20%, 30% is like, maybe you're saving millions of fish's lives at that point. (laughs) And you, what I like about it, because I'm an early stage is just those 10% better is is millions of fish, right? Yeah, no doubt. There's an opportunity to get your foot in the door and then who knows what the next five, 10 years holds for them. Man, that's amazing. Okay. And then final question, what is a book or a podcast? Where is, what's an information source right now that's really feeding you, really inspiring you? Oh man, I got to shout out my Uber buddies. There's a substack called The Pragmatic Engineer that's like can't miss for me. That it is, it's kind of, it's got all sorts of engineering and data trends kind of up and down the stack. But basically I consider it required reading for every CTO in the Rackhouse portfolio because it talks about it gives you like really pragmatic advice about specific management challenges. You know, how do I motivate a staff engineer was one that came out. Wow. Gives you great market intel. It's really good read. Strongly recommend. It's the pragmatic engineer. Pragmatic engineer. All right. Yeah, we'll leave that in the in the comments for people. But hey, Kevin, this has been amazing. I appreciate you for coming on and sharing all this game with us and with the folks listening. Wishing you continued success at Rackhouse. Maybe we'll get an opportunity to, to meet some of your founders in the future. Thank you. But yeah, really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. No doubt. Maybe, I'll, maybe we'll do it again. All right, man. All right. Till next time. Cheers. The Gradients is brought to you by Build Talent. To find out more about us, head to buildtalent.io and make sure to search for The Gradients and Apple Podcasts Google Podcast, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click follow so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And on behalf of everyone here at Build, thanks for listening. <laughs>